Jill Hillhouse is a certified nutritional practitioner from the Institute of Holistic Nutrition in Toronto. As a passionate advocate of nutrition, education and whole food eating, she talks to us now about her latest book, The Paleo Diabetes Diet Solution, that details how switching to a paleo lifestyle can help you effectively manage your blood sugar and diabetes. Good morning, Jill, and welcome to the Rokal Paleo Show. Good morning, Anna. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. It's our pleasure. Good morning, Mark. Um, how's everyone doing? Wonderful. Thank you. I trust you are both wonderfully well as well. Yes. Good morning, Mark. Good morning, Jill. Uh, Jill, our common friend, Lisa Cantier, suggested we talk to you, and there you are. You are yes. a certified nutritional practitioner a faculty member at the Institute of Holistic Nutrition, and much more. Can you tell us how you became a nutritionist? It, well, it is a bit of a journey. I, you know, I did, uh, my university studies were in kinesiology, and part of that is nutrition, of course, a very small part. Not that I really enjoyed it that much during university, but it really, uh, after I had my own children, became and wanted to feed them their first foods as, as well as I could and have them be as healthy as they could. That's really where my focus changed to how I need to find out more about this. I think I know about what good food is, but I'm not really sure. And so that's when I went back to school. So after my university education, I went back to school for holistic nutrition and really got the good founding at that at that stage, what it made me realize was the way I was brought up was really on the best food, you know, going to the market with my mother and cooking real food from, from whole foods, no packaged foods. Uh, it became apparent to me that I had actually grown up properly in terms of food. And uh, so I guess it really goes way back to my mother. <laughs> well, good for you. You were one of the lucky ones. I think so. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, nowadays it's getting more and more difficult to be raised that way. Well, it is. And, and uh, the food companies really have cornered the market on deliciousness in a lot of people's minds with that salt, sugar, fat composition of all of the food. And once you get a taste for that, it's really difficult to enjoy the bitter foods like arugula right. or, you know, radicchio yeah. or something like that. So... It's, you know, I think there are a couple of books out there, called, one's called The Dorito Effect, that talks about how our taste buds are really hijacked by processed food. Mm. Yeah, and they start very early on, so that's why you, yeah. you have to uh, educate young children very early on to learn about different tastes and not just focus on sugar and, you know, uh, MSGs and, you know, all these uh, artificial flavors that get you hooked early on. So that brings me to um, a book, your first book you wrote is called The Best Baby Food. Yes. What is the best uh, baby food and what <laughs> can you tell us about the, the book? Well, The Best Baby Food is, and this, and this talks about after nursing, um, ideally breastfeeding would be the best uh, given what I understand for various people, there are different situations around that. So we're not gonna go into that. Uh, realm of things. But once uh, a baby starts to eat solid foods, then the best baby food is real food, you know, whole foods. So 
um, the fruits and the vegetables and the lentils and beans and then the proteins and meat and fish and that sort of thing. Over the decades, the pediatric societies in North America have gone back and forth with allergenic foods and you can't introduce eggs and you can't introduce nuts and that kind of stuff. What they're finding now is that, in fact, if we introduce these more typically allergenic foods a little bit earlier, it looks like there are less, less allergies later on. So in fact, it's a good thing. But whole foods really boils down to whole foods are the best foods for baby. And uh, other than something like honey, which runs the risk of botulism, pretty much everything else can be introduced very early on. So can you uh, specify what whole food is uh, in your mind? What do you, uh, for the general public, what is yes. whole So whole food is something that doesn't have a label. So a broccoli would be a whole food or a sweet potato is the whole food. There's no label to tell you that it's a broccoli or well, hopefully people would know that, but uh, that's entirely possible that they don't. So anything that hasn't that is like it was when it came out of the ground or as close to possible uh, as it was when it came out of the ground. So um, we can get confused with that because a lot of the marketing from the food manufacturers say made with whole foods or whole grains or something like that, but they've been crushed and, and powdered and refined and mixed around. So we take a broccoli and we steam it and then we mash it and we puree it maybe in the blender for the very first foods of the baby, then that is right. all. Um, one of the issues I have with uh, American food is that there's sugar in everything. So in, in the, the baby food you recommend, do you put any sugar in it? Not at all, and, no. Okay. There would be fruit, uh, yeah. certainly, absolutely. You know, we are programmed for sweet early on. Breast milk is sweet. So we evolutionarily sweet meant calories to us. And that meant survival. Right. So we're programmed that way. So no denying that as soon as you get that sweet taste, you're going to want more of that. Mm -hmm. But if we can incorporate that sweet taste from fruit mm -hmm. and from all different kinds of fruit, not just banana, just right. sweet, or from all the berries and melons and all of that kind of stuff, then that would be the sweet. Can you, sweet potato is very sweet. Right. When you roast vegetables, they become a lot sweeter than if you just steam them or grill them or something like that. So we can access the sweet taste from food without adding sugar. Mm. Right. And, and the thing is, if your, if your uh, taste buds are too accustomed to the sweetness of food, then uh, they're not able to detect, you know, the, you get this sugar overload from uh, most commercial foods. And then later on, when you eat real food, you can't detect the sugar in them. But even onions are sweet. You know, exactly. when you yes. when you roast onions, they start to to taste sweeter. It's um, right. you know one trick I use when I cook when I saute onions, I put a pinch of salt to bring out the, the sugar in in the mm -hmm. onions, and they caramelize. It helps caramelize. That's how you make uh, the best onion soup, for example. And over a long time, right? You probably yeah. take your time while you're cooking them. Right, right. So um, you have just co-authored a book with uh, Lisa again, Lisa Cantier. 
called the Paleo Diabetes Diet Solution. Manage your blood sugar with 125 recipe plus a 30 days meal plan. Can you tell us this is brand new? It just came out last week, right? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about it? Well, here it is. I'm going to show it to you. Here it is right here. (laughs) Uh, And it, yes, it just came out last week. We're very excited about it. Uh, I've, in my nutritional practice, I see a lot of people with blood sugar issues mm-hmm. and I see that they know that they have blood sugar issues. And I see a lot of people that have other issues, but for which blood sugar is the foundation. Mm-hmm. So it is a really important piece of the puzzle when somebody has a health challenge that we want to address really early on in the process, right at the beginning of the process of, of understanding what's going on. So we came to do this book because it is so foundational and people think, Oh, well, I don't have a sugar problem unless I have diabetes. And even though there's diabetes in the title of this book, it, it, anything beyond sort of absolutely perfect blood sugar Hmm. is diabetes. (laughs) So diabetes is almost an arbitrary line in the sand but we, we suffer from the effects of high blood sugar much earlier than that line in the sand. So we thought it was a really important thing to get out there to equate uh, diabetes with a way of eating, the paleo way of eating, that will really dramatically lower people's blood sugar. So, for example, uh, what would you say, um, I, I know about insulin resistance and then prediabetes and so on and so forth, which is what people typically don't pay attention to until it's too late. What is, uh, what is the blood sugar level that signal danger? Pretty much anything over the high 90s. Now, my, my blood sugar uh, numbers in Canada are a little different than yours, so I was going to just look at my chart here. But, and when we talk about blood sugar, for the most part, we're talking about fasting blood sugar nice. because that's what most people get tested for right. from their family physicians. So any, a fasting blood sugar in American... Um, numbers over the high 90s, let's say over 98, 99, 100, uh, indicates that there is some blood sugar dysfunction for sure. Right. Uh, a lot of people are coming in a lot higher than that. Right. Their fasting blood sugar is at 110, and that may still be in the quote-unquote normal range, but mm. really it's not because we've equated normal with healthy, and mm. they're not necessarily the same thing. Right. There's also another misconception, which is that only uh, overweight or obese people have diabetes. But it's not true. Skinny people can have diabetes too, right? Absolutely. And uh, that is a big issue because really the common thought out there is that, well, I'm not overweight, I, uh, so I don't have any blood sugar issue. Uh, there is an, an acronym, TOFI, T-O-F-I, Uh, thin uh, on the outside, fat on the inside. And so people can be the right shape and the right size, but still have a lot of fat within the liver and within the pancreas and maybe even surrounding the organs in the abdomen. And that is a problem for blood sugar. So they, and even, even when they go to their doctor, often they're weighed and they're measured and their weight is within a good range and the other signs are missed. Uh, one one question I've been asking myself because I've dealt with a couple of uh, diabetes patients in the past and is why is it as as we get older we seem to be more and more attracted to sugar? 
well, attracted, that probably comes from our habits over time uh, and the refining of foods. So even flours, you know, whole wheat flour or whole grain flour or whatever, once they're ground up into that wonderful powder and made into a bread or a muffin or something like that, they taste sweet relative to if you ate it as a grain. Yeah. Uh, and they break down very quickly in the bloodstream into glucose, into blood sugar. And so we get high blood sugar, even from grains without even sugar being there at all. So I think maybe over time that contributes uh, to our desire to have more sugar and to have more sweet. So, so I take it obviously that uh, your favorite diet for this is the paleo diet. It is very definitely. Yes. Now, whether or not it's strict paleo, you know, strict paleo doesn't have any salt. It doesn't have any um, dairy. It doesn't have any lentils or legumes, that sort of thing. So I guess I'd have to say I'm more modified paleo, but really it does. It's determined by who is sitting in front of me in terms of a, of a client. You know, right. there are 7 billion of us on the planet and there are 7 billion diets. We not one specific diet is right for absolutely everybody. Yeah. So my job as a nutritionist is to try and figure out what's the best diet for you. And given uh, your physiology and what's going on from a medical perspective, but also how do you live and where do you live and what access do you have to food and what's your stress level and how do you sleep and do you have any digestive problems? Because the gut is really uh, a big piece of our whole health puzzle, not just much. For example, my I have also have a modified paleo. It's basically the primal diet because yes. I'm French, so I cannot live without cheese. Yes, well, I would have to agree with that. <laughs> I, I can't drink milk because I'm lactose intolerant, but I can eat uh, as long as I pay attention to the kind of cheese, typically yeah. raw or goat cheese. Or um, right now, I love uh, Roquefort. For example, I'm on the Roquefort band. Okay. Yes, uh, I'll eat. I'll eat any cheese as long as it's not processed. If it's good quality, and then you know, uh, typically my first choice is raw and, and goat cheese, and then I I go from there. Mm-hmm. So you know, as long that's something that we may we may want to mention is as long as you know the logic to dairy, then um, cheese in moderation is acceptable. And of course, you have to take into account cholesterol levels. But you know, that's something that. Uh, I like the fact that you're not absolutely strict with it. Otherwise, um, it tends to put people off. Customers tend to be very uh, yeah, put off if you're too strict. No question. And uh, if you can't stick with a way of eating beyond a couple of days, then it's not going to do you any good from a health perspective. Uh, from a cheese perspective, from a dairy perspective, milk can be very... Uh, insulinogenic. So milk can actually help people's blood sugar and their insulin go up. So yes, milk or ice cream, of course, because it has the sugar, but any kind of a milk situation can be a problem from a blood sugar perspective. Cheese often isn't, you're right. And uh, if it's raw and unprocessed, then of course, we've got wonderful bacteria in there too, that help the health of our own intestine, which in turn helps us digest the lactose uh, and, and and go from there. And when you talk about an allergy to dairy, you know, o- over 60% of the population cannot process lactose beyond infancy. 
I've had my genetics tested, so I know that I am lactase persistent, so I can still digest it. I still have the lactase yeah. enzyme, so I feel very lucky to have that because I do like my cheese. That's for sure. Well, one thing, um, uh, one thing I've noticed because um, when I decide to, I can have access to raw milk, mm -hmm. and I know where to go to get that. And I can tell on the on the on okay. online because uh, the farmers yeah, being arrested. That's right. Yes, yes, that's the way the the state of the affairs these days. If you uh, do good quality products, you can get arrested. Yes, but that's another issue. Um, and I've noticed that when I drink uh, raw milk, I actually don't get uh, stomach problems and and bloating and gas and all the same thing I would get with regular processed milk. So again. Uh, because the raw milk comes with its own enzyme to digest uh, lactose. So lactose yes. comes with the raw milk and then you don't have a problem. So that's something also we should be careful to let people know is that processed milk may not be good for you, but typically, you know, you'll have to test on yourself, but typically a raw milk of a good quality should be acceptable. Yes, and it's worthwhile uh, finding out about if you have access to it, for right. sure. The homogenization process of milk changes the fat molecules in it, too, which contribute to digestive issues as well. Right. So, and again, with a, with a warning that if you are already diabetic, then milk should be out completely. That's right. right. One of the things I talk about in my book is... Uh, one of the keys for understanding your own situation with your blood sugar is to test your blood sugar with a, a personal glucometer. And that way you're going to know what foods affect you and what foods don't. Because for you, you know, sweet potato might be terrific, but for me, it might act like ice cream in my body. So um, testing the sort of 30, 60, 90, 120 minutes after you eat something will give you a really good idea of how your body is responding to that particular food. And that's what I like to recommend. Right, right. So typically when you work with uh, diabetic patients, what, what, how do you first approach the patient and, and uh, what, what, is, uh, how, what do you tell them and uh, how do you explain the situation? Do you go through a whole uh, explanation of the how diabetes happen or can you tell us that yeah and it's not unlike how i would approach anything but education is a huge part of my practice so um and if i i feel that if people understand how things work then they're more able to make changes so uh, the understanding of what's really happening is is key but one of my favorite tools is a food log and i know people don't like to uh, keep a food log <laughs> because no, no, they feel, no. I don't know they feel judged or whatever but it is I only use it as an information tool if you don't know where you are you can't know where you want to go so or we can know where you want to go but if you don't know where you are you can't figure out the directions so we need to know what is going on right now where mm -hmm. is the person so with a food log it's not only the foods that I would look at but it would be what time of day are you eating? How long is it between your foods? Was there any protein at that last meal? How much fiber are you having? So regardless of whether you have a Twinkie in the afternoon, that's not necessarily great, but let's look at the rest of the day around that and see how was that affected by the rest of the food that you ate? Or because you didn't eat breakfast, then you, did you spend your whole evening 
standing in front of the cupboard looking for something to eat because you weren't fueled properly early in the day. So that's my favorite tool. So I always start there is with a food log with people. Um, And people come to understand that that is a really good way of understanding where they are in the present moment. Uh, And often people will say, well, no, I eat really well. I do fine. I had a salad last night. You know, but they didn't eat until four o'clock or they didn't have any protein until dinner or something like that. So it's really an eye opener for most people. Right, right. You could even have a combination of the food blog and uh, on um, like under comments or, you know, results, you could have them test themselves and then write down the, the result so they can see the connection between the food they eat and the result 30 exactly. minutes or an hour after that. That would be a probably an eye-opener for them, right? Absolutely. And what people, um, diabetics that are, are rec- uh, where, where it's recommended that they t- test their blood sugar, often they're told to, well, test fasting in the morning, test right when you get up, and then test two hours after your meals. Well, a lot can happen in that two hours. Your blood sugar may have gone sky high and then come back to normal at 120 minutes after your meal, but that sky high is a problem. Yeah, yeah. So that doesn't mean you're out of the woods, right? Mm-hmm. Or you may have had just a nice curve and everything is fine. So I, I outline in the book a little bit more of a schedule in terms of testing. And, and early on in people's understanding of their diet, they probably will end up with sore fingers from, from uh, poking themselves yeah. all the time. But ultimately, when you know that a sweet potato does this to you, and then you know you can have it without testing your blood sugar. Or you know, no, I can't have it right now because I need to do some healing in my metabolism first. But maybe in three months, maybe in six months, I'll be back to that. Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, in your opinion, is diabetes uh, reversible? Type 2 diabetes, I think, is uh, for the most part. If you've had it for 20 years, chances are, it's probably not going to be entirely reversible, but what can be at least halted are the effects of the, the detrimental effects of high blood sugar and high insulin if you get those under control. So things like neuropathy, the, the, the nerve damage in the feet um, and retinopathy and in the eyes, cardiovascular risks come along with high blood sugar for sure. Yeah. Fatty liver, right? Even associations with cancer and very definitely we're seeing more and more associations with dementia and potentially Alzheimer's. So, yes, I think we can at least halt things, if not reverse. Yeah. Right. I've actually known a couple of my clients that uh, were type 1, and they, and uh, especially a young lady, and she, she was like 14 at the time I met her, and she controlled her blood sugar just through diet. She, she almost never used uh, insulin. Insulin, yeah. And she was type 1, so that's the one you're born with, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it. There's increasingly um, type 1 happening into adulthood as well, because it is an autoimmune situation. Mm. So people can develop that autoimmune situation over time. So we are starting to see more and more type 1 or type 1 and a half kind of thing uh, as people get older, which is, mm. shows that there is damage to the cells in the pancreas that produce the insulin. And it's not just that they've gotten tired, uh, although it's more complicated than that. But, but very definitely type 1, people should be managing their blood sugar too 
from yeah. their diet, very yeah. definitely, because they can become insulin resistant just like everybody, just like a type two, if they're injecting too much insulin to deal with the too many carbohydrates that they're eating. So, so right. food is really important for type one as well. But, but the hard part is that we live in a society of instant uh, gratification. So uh, <laughs> instead of working hard and changing the diet, they'd rather shoot themselves with insulin. Well, you know, food is really hard to change. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you, people think, well, I gave up smoking and I, or I stopped alcohol or whatever, but we do have to eat multiple times a day uh, <laughs> or a couple times a day. So the number of decisions we have to make around food every day are, is incredible. So our willpower can become very taxed uh, yeah. with that. So we want to put in habits if we can. Yeah, changing food is is very, very difficult. But food is the single most important influence on our health. And yep, yeah. if we understand that, then we can say, okay, what's the one change I can make today? Mm. And then start to build on that. Right. So um, one thing, uh, one side thing that I've noticed is that um, it used to be that type 2 diabetes was called adult onset diabetes and now children have it i mean now the one that were not born with it but by eating all this sugary food and drinking all these uh, sodas and everything you know at 10 years old they're already diabetic so um what, what do you tell parents when that's the case when that is the case we have to look at the food as a family unit because it's not just the children sneaking you know up to a certain age they're not sneaking out on their own with their own money and buying their pop it's being provided or or you know sugar cereals or or even just noodles right noodles i can't tell you how many kids i know that won't eat anything but noodles and butter or noodles and cheese you know there's no protein there's no vegetables there's no fruit other than bananas so um Really, we have to look at the whole family as a unit in terms of their food and what's entering the house. So it's more of an education for the parents. Yeah. Uh, once the children have their own money and they can go out to the corner store or, or stop at the fast food restaurant with friends on their way home from school, it becomes a little bit more of a challenge for sure. But And school. Um, and yeah. school. School, and school. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's so what, what if we take the top out of schools? We still got the fruit juice. It's important to control what's at home, but then once they're out of sight of home, then it's it. That's when I feel education with kids is extremely important. You yes. need to tell them what is bad for them and and put the connection between what did you eat and how bad do you feel afterwards. And what's more, even more important or goes along with that is the modeling of the parents because if the parents are saying no don't do this and don't do this is bad for you but meanwhile there's no vegetables on their plate or you know everything is is soaked in in a well i like barbecue sauce so i wouldn't say that but <laughs> <laughs> if you know there's a there's the pop that goes along with dinner or a fruit juice even or yeah. we start the day with orange juice and cereal well, isn't that a healthy breakfast well, you've just consumed about 50 grams of carbohydrate, almost no fiber and no protein. So your yeah. blood sugar is going to go like this. So yeah, yeah. we have to fight against the billion, the multi-billion dollar industry of food marketing. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what happens is you have you load these kids with sugar first thing in the morning 
they go to school, they go in, you know, hyper, hyperglycemia, and then they crash. And then all of a sudden they can't, they don't just, uh, the, their brains turns into mush, they can't pay attention, they can focus. And then all of a sudden they're called ADD, ADHD, yes. and they started to uh, be put on drugs. And I mean, it's crazy when all of this could be uh, controlled by just diet. That's right. We keep, I, I would like to call it, let's go back upstream. Hmm. You know, so this is the situation. Why did we have, end up with this situation? Why did Johnny at school act this way? What did he have for breakfast? How much sleep did he get? Did he walk to school? Did he drive, get driven to school? Hmm. You know, we put the kids in these schools where they can't move around. Uh, you know, if we had standing desks in every school, wouldn't that be a fantastic thing around the outside of the classroom so that these, these people could do what we're supposed to do, which is move around and uh, use our energy appropriately. So, yeah, it's, it's not just one thing. Uh, when I rule the world, maybe we can, we can fix it. All right. You and I, you and I. <laughs> uh, I know I'm going to sound like an old guy, but in my days in school, we had uh, what is called recreation between between classes. We were actually allowed to go out and play for like 15 minutes. Yeah. Right between classes. Between every so, class. Between every class, yeah. Wow. There was there was a there was a break, and we were allowed to go out and run around and scream and you know kick each other if we felt like it or whatever you know kids do, and then so. You spend all that energy and you go back to class, you, you calm again and, uh, you know, and you've done a little bit of exercise. I mean, you, you go onto the, the, whatever they put in the, the in monkey bars or something. Monkey bars, yeah, and those, those kind of, so there's some form of running around exercise, uh, even though it's, it's playing, but it is exercise. Uh, yeah. Nowadays, they barely have time to run from one class to another that's all the break is for is just to get from one class to another there's no there's no break to play to uh, to spend energy no that's right and you know maybe in our quest for excellence and producing the best products possible after school um we lose track of that and we lose sight that i didn't have recreation after each class but i certainly had recess mm -hmm. once in the morning and once in the afternoon uh, where you could run around. But now watching my children go through the school system here in Canada anyway, or in Toronto, um, they take certain things out of the playgrounds. There's no longer monkey bars that look like this. There are no swings because heaven forbid somebody gets knocked over. And, mm. and so we're creating a nanny state around what is acceptable in the playground and what isn't there are no there are no basketballs anymore mm. at my son's school. So because That's somebody crazy head with a basketball so I, I don't know you know it, it becomes kind of crazy to me where we can draw the line um heaven forbid we have snow in canada you have snow yeah. it's too <laughs> yeah. uh, you can't pick it up though you can't pick it up because you might throw it at somebody so uh it's a real crazy <laughs> no, I, I do remember some um, some mean kids putting rock in the middle of the snow and then throw sure. it at, right Sure. To snowball with a rock, but yeah. those are extremely rare. I mean, if you take the if you take the fun and the games out of a uh, out of a child's life, what is there to enjoy as a kid? Well, now we have social media, so that's you know you go to the gamification of of recreation, mm -hmm. and we end up in a lot of trouble there. That's not 
that's that's completely wrong completely wrong okay so back on track yeah <laughs> <laughs> down the so political end of things i i uh i don't know about you but i found that um Typically, my customers are very resistant to my uh, diet recommendations, uh, if, if not downright rebellious. But so how do you, how do you manage that? Compliance is a, is a big issue for all of us. None of us like to be told what to do. So, so uh, Especially of- now what to eat, because there's also a lot of emotions attached yeah. to food. Very much so, very much so. Getting back to the food log that I would have originally done with somebody and the education of, of, the, of what blood sugar is and how food determines our blood sugar, I would try to go and put in, let's say there's no protein at breakfast. I would probably just try and insert a protein there as opposed to pulling everybody off grain right away. I would certainly try and pull people off added sugar very quickly. So evaluating, you know, is there... Are they eating a cereal that has added sugar? Are they eating, are they having a lot of sugar in their tea or coffee? Are they using fruit juice and things like that? So um, that would be my first thing would be to get people off of added sugar. But grain is, a, is another story. Getting people off grain can be really difficult. So I try and put in the big pieces of paleo first. Like let's put in a good protein at each meal. Let's put in a lot of the uh, non-starchy vegetables that need to be there. And then if you have any room, maybe we can have a smaller portion of grain and then wean ourselves all of the, off of that. So while at the same time getting the, the big rocks in the habit of protein at every meal, and it's not a massive amount of protein, it's just mm-hmm. the appropriate amount of protein, and vegetables. Mm-hmm. Those are two, you know, vegetables, we, we need a lot of vegetables for all the micronutrients that are in there, for all the minerals and vitamins and all of the phytonutrients, the plant chemicals that are antioxidants in the body that will help uh, negate some of those effects of the high blood sugar. So trying to educate that way and get the habits formed around the big pieces, and then we gradually try and eliminate the rest. Right, right. I have a trick question now. What is your diet? My diet is modified paleo for sure. Um, but I, I do love bread. There's no question, especially beautiful French baguette. I mean, that's, right. and people say, well, you can eat brown baguette. Uh, it's like, no, <laughs> if I'm going to eat baguette, I'm going to eat real baguette. So, but it is with a complete awareness of what I do and awareness of the rest of my food for the day mm-hmm. and awareness that it is not a daily or even every other day or even every third day thing. So there's still a place for celebration. There's still a place for birthday cake uh, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. <clears throat> awareness for sure. Right. Um, when, when I cheat with bread is uh, typically um, uh, do only uh, real sourdough bread. Yes. Like naturally fermented sourdough bread. So the part of the, uh, the sugar is already absorbed by the, the uh, the bacteria and the enzymes in there, so, and it's plus I love the taste, you know, that fermented natural fermentation taste. So yes. again, you you it's a probiotic bread, if you will. Yes. So it's a much better option, but it's yeah. still a bread option. So so over time, we want that habit of the bread right. to mm-hmm. go away. Yeah. Yeah. But typically, I cheat once a week for brunch on Sunday. I get a slice, a nice slice of sourdough bread. That's my cheat. 
Okay. <laughs> the rest of the time, I, I I'm thinking I don't have any bread at home. No. So I'm not. No, I'm not. Uh, maybe a cookie here and there. Well, you hit the nail on the head there. You don't have it at home. So that's right. one of our, our biggest issues for all of us is that it's, we have it in the house. Uh, and right. it's really easy to, for us to access. So yeah. just don't if you, have it. If you take the temptation away, if it's yeah. not, like we say in French, loin des yeux, loin du coeur, far from the eyes, you know, you can't think about it. So. It's yeah. not tempting you. It's not there in your face. Eat me, eat me, right? Exactly. That's right. In the book, I talk about, you know, cheat days and the 80-20 rule and everything in moderation. Uh, we all hear those all the time. They're good for you because if you feel deprived, then, you know, you're more likely to binge or something like that. Mm -hmm. but in the, and that may be so for a healthy person. Uh, but in the case of diabetes... My stand in the book is, no, that doesn't apply to you. You have diabetes, you have blood sugar dysfunction. Mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't say somebody who is an alcoholic, well, you can just have one beer on Friday night. That's no problem. Or somebody who's trying to get off cigarettes, well, one a day is okay. You know, you need to live a little. So blood sugar is the same thing. It's as deadly. So we need to mm -hmm. get rid of those ideas that, well, I can fix it later. No, we need to fix yeah, it Yeah, yeah. Well, that's usually where where you start slipping away, you know, you start, oh, I could do it just a little bit. And then all of a sudden, yeah. Um, I, I, I read a study that they, um, they put uh, mice on sugar and mice on uh, heroin drugs, yes. you know, illegal drugs, heroin. It was easier to get the mice off heroin than to get them off sugar. Yes, it does light up the same part of the brain as uh, cocaine, I saw a cocaine study, heroin. Cocaine, yeah, cocaine, uh, yeah. So it lights up the same part of the brain. So we have the same issues with the neurotransmitters. So the message is the same. And, but we think, what well, I've been eating sugar. Sugar's been around for, you know, centuries and millennia and that sort of thing. But, yeah. No, really, no, yeah. really. And the sugar is a commercial uh, processed food that started about 100 years ago. The way we eat it now, that's right, yeah. Historically, historically, yeah. I mean, there was always food that had some sweetness to it, but the processed food, the processed carbohydrates just started to happen with the Industrial re um, Revolution, not before. That's right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, uh, even uh, even two generations ago, my grandmother, um, she rarely ate any processed food at all. And she made her own bread and she would grind her own uh, wheat. Yeah, you know, uh, with the with the hand grinder, you know, uh, yes. you can still, but uh, you know, and, and because she was, and this was interesting because there's also a kind of a cultural issue in there is that uh, for the longest time, white bread was uh, the rich people's bread yeah. because it was white, it was refined, it was only the peasant uh, ate the uh, pen campagne, you know, the country style bread. Yeah. I, I remember that, you know, when you were poor, you could only afford to eat the, the, <laughs> the whole wheat bread. That's right. And now it's flipped, right? And now it's flipped now. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting when you think about it. So yeah. in, your, in your book, can you share uh, which is uh, your favorite recipe in your book? Ooh, my favorite recipe. Well, I do love grass-fed meat. Mm -hmm. So... Um, I, and I love hamburgers. Mm. 
so a skillet burger done in, the, done in a cast iron skillet with some grass-fed butter inside a portobello mushroom bun okay. with all the condiments, you know, the uh, pickles and onions and tomatoes and mm. mustard and homemade, you know, paleo mayonnaise. Uh, so that is one of, right now, that's pretty much my favorite dish, I'd say. Do you, uh, do you typically saute the mushroom as well, or you just eat it raw with that? I, I bake it. So I try and get some of the moisture out of the big bun, uh, the big right, portable. Right. Um, so I put it, I do it in the oven. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they do shrink a lot, though, when you bake them. They do. But you want to get some of that moisture out, because if not, it's just this big, massive, right, right. <laughs> dripping thing. Right, right. Yeah. I typically eat it straight. Just uh, straight up, no, no buns, no nothing. It's just yeah. straight with, uh, uh, with a nice, uh, you know, make salad with it. And, yes, and then always put the uh, uh, gray poupon on it, and that's it. That's yes, all. and the grainy mustard, right? I like the grainy yeah. mustard. Yeah, I like the grainy. Yeah, and uh, and of course a big, as you say, the big salad beside it, the big vegetables, mm -hmm. uh, maybe some caramelized onions that you were talking about on top. Of right, it. right, or nuts, seeds. Yeah, you know, I haven't done that much, so much, but yeah. Yeah. Um, any other comments about uh, regarding the books and your recommendations in the book? In the book, the first part of the book is uh, the first hundred pages is health information. So it's an education of what's diabetes all about, what's paleo all about, and how do the two interface and how do they how do they work together? So what I'd like to say about the book is that it's it's an easy read that way, and you don't have to to wade through a whole big scientific book about diabetes and paleo. Um, and then it, because it gives you all of the recipes there too, and a 30 day meal plan, not that we're going to be cooking a new food every day. That's very difficult for people, but it gives you the option of some great ways of introducing less carbohydrates into your life and trying to get rid of the really big fast carbohydrates of grain and sugar. So I think it's a very accessible book, I guess is really what I'm saying. Good. Sounds like your book is like mine. It's uh, educational and plus recipes. Maybe yes. we, should, we should trade books. I think that would be great. I would love that. I will yeah. send you mine if you send me yours. Okay. <laughs> I will do that. Absolutely. Actually, it's probably a quite a simple question. In your experience, do you think there are quite a few people who are having diabetes without knowing Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can't tell you the number of people that I have as clients that come to me and say, I had no idea. All of a sudden I got diabetes. Well, it wasn't all of a sudden, <laughs> but it does feel like that, especially if they didn't have a weight, a big obesity issue going on at the same time. Right. So, um, yes, I think there are a lot of people out there. In fact, statistically now we're estimating that over 50% of the population of North America has prediabetes or diabetes. So it's yeah. a bit bigger than what, what type of symptoms should people be looking out for? Until it's full-blown diabetes, you may not have any of the big symptoms that we're told about, like thirst or having to urinate all the time. Um, the symptoms that I see in most people are fatigue. Are you tired all the time? And people say, well, yeah, because I work so hard and I've got so much stress and I've got kids and I've got this and I've got that. But are you tired all the time? That afternoon slump? is a really good indicator that there's a blood sugar issue because you probably didn't eat 
appropriately earlier in the day. Needing caffeine first thing in the morning, have to have my coffee before I get going. Can only go two hours without food. Um, that can be another big indicator too, because we're sort of, we're, we're told that, well, you need to eat frequently to keep your metabolism going. And in fact, from a blood sugar perspective, we shouldn't eat too frequently because that keeps our blood sugar and our insulin high all day. So the three meals a day, as Alain was talking about his grandparents not eating refined foods, and they also only ate three times a day. So um, we have constant food available to us all the time. It's a problem. Yeah, actually, I, um, I, I have a, quite a disagreement with some nutritionists that I used to work with when they recommend uh, eating constantly throughout the day, like small meals instead of three big meals, like just small meals all the time. Yeah. To me, it doesn't make any sense. You just, I mean, yes, um, uh, they claim that because they're diabetic, then they should keep up their, their energy level, you know, kind of by eating constantly. But in the process, you also develop insulin resistance and your body doesn't have time to digest food and rest between meals and so on and so forth. What's your take on that? Absolutely. I completely agree. We want our insulin to go down. And the only way the insulin goes down is if there is no food around for it to work on. So no digesting uh, blood sugar. So yes, I think three meals a day is, is ideal. Now we may not be able to get somebody there right off the bat. If they really have a blood sugar issue, we may need to put in some smaller meals in there, but we've got to really compose those properly. And they, they you know, almost no carbohydrates, mostly probably just fat. Oh, sorry, protein, a little bit of fat in there um, to prevent them from going into a really big slump at the, uh, of hypoglycemia. So, but I agree completely. Uh, going three meals a day. I mean, there's a lot of work being done into intermittent fasting and that sort of thing that mm -hmm. is showing great benefit for certain situations, including dementia. Actually, I found uh, my own experience is that I, I eat a um, good breakfast, a good lunch, and then dinner is very light for me. I keep it very light because your body cannot try to sleep and digest at the same time. So you, you, if you're going to trying to rest, then you should literally allow your body to rest and not digest when, you know, some people eat their biggest meal at dinner and yeah. then it takes them uh, forever to digest and go to sleep. Well, and we eat our biggest meal at dinner and then we snack after dinner. <laughs> and so we're going, you're right, we're going to bed with a full stomach and we want the body to do doing other things like repairing things and getting rid of waste and all of that kind of stuff during the night. We want growth hormone to be released during the night instead of having to just process what's in the, in the gut. Yeah. Going back to something you said earlier, um, obviously if we're cutting down carbohydrates, which under a conventional diet most people would gain their energy from, when you cut down the carbohydrates, do you um, ask people to have a greater intake of fat, greater intake of protein, or, or both, or what proportion do you typically advise? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily boil down to a, a number or percentage um, because I think that people find that confusing too. But definitely as the protein or as the carbohydrates come down, when you get rid of sugar and grain, the proportion of protein and fat comes up. You may not actually be adding um, a whole bunch 
more grams of fat and protein, but proportionately in the in the whole diet makeup, it does rise. Um, and people might notice at the beginning when they start cutting out grain and sugar that in fact, for a little while, even up to a week, some people, they really have no energy because their body is so used to burning carbohydrate for fuel that they are really wiped out. But that is a temporary thing. So if you can educate people that you need to get through that as long as you make sure that there's enough protein and fat uh, of the good fats um, at regular intervals during the day, then that will pass as the body loses, uh, it stops just relying on the glucose for fuel and can start burning some of the fat for fuel too. When we have high insulin, because we have high blood sugar, we can't access our fat. So fat burning is inhibited. So we've got to get that insulin down, then we can start to burn fat. It doesn't happen immediately. Okay, this is maybe something a bit off the wall, but if somebody thinks that they're or feels that they're not quite as they should be, um, is there any value in them just getting a, a blood testing kit to see if their blood sugar level is going up and down? Absolutely. I think that's a great idea because self-advocacy is your best tool for your healthcare. Uh, and that comes from knowing exactly what is going on in your body. If you were to go to your doctor and say, I'm not feeling quite right, then fasting blood sugar might be the only test that is run. Mm -hmm. And they might say, no, you're absolutely fine. You know, you're at 86. And so that's actually quite good. So, um, but when you eat something, you may go really high and then really low. So yes, I think home testing uh, is really a good idea for a lot of people. Well, maybe even for most of us. Super. Uh, and typically, are there any particular devices you would recommend for that type of thing? No, I don't. I don't know them all. Um, I've just went to uh, my big box store and got the one that was there. <laughs> so uh, I think it really doesn't matter. Um, it's the consistency with which you use it that matters. Uh, just like any diet doesn't, you know, if you're following it, then that's the, that's the one that's working for you. Super job. Coming back to your book again, if you can show it to us. Yes. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, quick question. A lot of people think it's an instant job. How long did that take you to write? <laughs> uh, well, in fact, I wrote this one very quickly. I wrote this one in four months, um, and but I had a lot of the recipes from my years as a nutritionist, so I didn't have to develop all the recipes, uh, um, but there was certainly a lot of testing. But the, the health information, yeah, it was four months in, in the writing of this, but often a book will take um, a year to mm. do. So this was a fast one. And did you enjoy doing it? I loved it. I love the research. I love trying to take the current science as best we know it, because we don't know everything right now, and put it into terms that people can uh, understand that actually they can use to change their life. So that's, uh, I do like doing that. Will we be seeing any other collaborations between you and Lisa coming up? Uh, well, we now we have to promote the book, so <laughs> that's our that's our focus right now. But certainly, uh, we are always talking about that. What's what other information do people need? Okay, I want to flip right back to the the start of our conversation, baby food. Yes. Um, 
obviously I understood that that would be, you know, food that people are eating at home that might be mashed up and so forth, prepared for, for the baby. Um, what would you advocate are the, uh, how can I put it, sort of the ten main or even five main things that mothers should be feeding their children from a natural, healthy point of view? What, what are the must-haves and what are the must-avoids? The, the must-haves are uh, vegetables. <laughs> That's, that's number one, two, and three, is, uh, is vegetables. Um, uh, fruit, vegetables, fruit, protein foods. So depending on culture, maybe lentils and, and beans are what people would be using for protein. Maybe it would be fish. Maybe it would be animal products. So, uh, but leaving the grains out for as long as possible and maybe not even introducing the grains. Mm. Um, water instead of fruit juice, um, breast milk or formula if that's continuing, but uh, certainly water is what we need for hydration and we need the vegetables and protein and fiber. So fiber is going to come from some of your fruit, vegetables, of course, but it's also going to come from lentils and beans and nuts and seeds. Okay. So it's in fact kind of a paleo diet. Hmm. And I'm guessing if they follow that type of diet and diabetes isn't something I'm guessing if they follow that type of diet as a child, and diabetes isn't something they'll ever experience. That's correct. Yeah, because the right habits are going in early on, um, and the body is using its fuel instead of storing it too much, and uh, the right information is getting to the body. So food, we always think of food as fuel, mm -hmm. but food is, in fact, information. And it tells the body, it's our interaction between the environment and, and our own self. So if we eat certain things, we're being told that we're telling our genes to do certain things. And we want to turn off the genes that are going to lead to disease and turn on the genes that promote health. So a whole foods diet without sugar and without high blood sugar um, is, is giving, going to give us the right information. And I want to flip forward a few years possibly. Yes. Um, coming back to you, what was it that made you decide to take up the profession you've taken? In the incarnation that it is right now, probably my children. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, as I said, if I look back, I mean, I was always interested in the physical sciences and in the health sciences, in kinesiology and physical education and university, uh, and a lot of sports before that. So... I don't necessarily think there was one thing, but the impetus that pushed me into the holistic nutrition was certainly feeding my children appropriately. Mm. So really, sort of a mother's love for her children that said, I want to do the best I can for these. And, and then teach them so that they can do the best for themselves over their, over their lifetime. Mm. And, I guess and, passing, and passing along what your mom also taught you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It work for you. Uh, I have a question also, which we didn't address: is um, uh, any kind of physical exercise or whatever? Is that? Do you speak to that effect in your book about uh, recommending exercise? Uh, any kind of form of movement that is. Yes. In fact, in the book, there's one chapter on what else to look at other than food. So I talk about movement and stress and sleep and the microbiome, the state of the intestine um, and toxins, those are all related. But in terms of movement, 
I don't, I, I veer away from recommending any specific kind of exercise because really in North America anyway, we just need to move more period. So instead of saying you have to go out and walk 10,000 steps or, or, you know, uh, go to the gym three times a week or five times a week, I like to say, let's just stand up more. Let's uh, move more. Let's take the stairs. Let's park further. All the things that you hear, those really do add up over time. And if we can go back to those being habits, then we don't even think about it. It's functional movement, right? So if somebody, and this is common for my clients, they're sitting watching television, so stand up every commercial for the whole commercial break and then sit down again. And even better, walk around for the whole commercial break, go up and down the stairs a couple of times, and then go back. And the studies show that even that kind of movement makes a dramatic difference. And the 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 benefits that we get from going to the gym can be negated by a whole day's worth of sitting. So let's just move more yeah. over the whole day. Right. And I, I noticed a big difference um, when I went back to a stand-up desk. Yes. I'd, I'd uh, been called away to um, on, a, on a few other bits and pieces that I needed to do. And while I was there, I had a sit-down desk. And I started noticing my trousers were getting tight and all those sorts of things. I've got to have a stand-up desk again. And we know we've sort of come out of the out of the last couple of decades of super fitness. Yeah. You know, we have to be it started with the aerobics in the 80s, right? And then it, it, every decade is something with CrossFit and all of this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's terrific for a lot of things. But really we just need to, as you say, we need to stand up at our desk at work. Maybe we could go talk to our colleague instead of emailing them, uh, you know, take the stairs and, instead of the escalators or the elevators, yeah. Yeah, for Mark and I, our favorite exercise is dancing. Yeah, fantastic. Together? No, no, no. No, no, I like, I like that. Don't go there now. We have a little dance break. We can just put on some music. We can all dance. And where can we find your books and information about you and your services? My books are both available on Amazon. So uh, the um, the Paleo Diabetes Diet Solution was was that one. And I don't think I showed the baby food, so I'm going to show that one as well. There's the uh, best baby food. They're both available on Amazon, and uh, my website is my name, so it's uh, jillhillhouse.com, and all of my social media links are on there as well. Okay, great, great. Thank you again, Jill, for being on the Local Paleo Show, and as we say in Texas, à votre santé, y'all. <laughs> Thank you so much. I loved being here. That was a real pleasure having you, and thank you for all the brilliant information. Terrific. Thank you very much, Mark. <laughs>